Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to a podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we Welcome in, everybody, episode 299 of the podcast. It is Swimming America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Tuesday, September 29th, 2020, people. I hope everybody had a great Monday, and I hope everybody is ready for a great Tuesday. This is the second episode of this week. We are doing three episodes a week going forward. This is the plan. Who knows? Maybe someday we'll be at five episodes a week, but as of right now, Tuesday is our second episode, third episode dropping Thursday. And we got a great episode today. I think one of the fun things about doing this second episode is that I get to sometimes hit on different topics than I would not be able to otherwise. And so what I'm going to talk about on today's show is a few different things. First of all, uh, we are about to enter the greatest stretch of sports in the history of our lives. I want to talk a little bit about just what's ahead. And then what I will do is do something that I don't normally do on this show, which is I'm actually going to talk a little bit about the NBA because obviously, look, I cover a ton of college hoops on this show. And I think that with a lot of young guys in this NBA final, specifically Tyler Hero, Bam Adebayo, guys like that, I think there are some obvious uh, college ties. And I just find the Miami Heat fascinating. I think they're one of the more interesting teams uh, that I've ever kind of witnessed in the NBA have this much success. This will not be a traditional preview, quote unquote. But I just want to talk a little bit about the Heat because I tweeted something out about them on Sunday night when they clinched. It got a lot of traction. People were into it. Uh, And so we will talk about that. We will wrap with a new segment that we are going to be doing every Tuesday here on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. And that's a little something I like to call Hot Take Tuesday, okay? First of all, these are not my hot takes. So you want your boy Torres. Torres comes in hot every single day. Uh, No hot takes for me. Instead, what happened was this. On Saturday night in college football, after the games ended, uh, I just put out a tweet. I said, what are your biggest hot takes from this first full weekend of college football with the SEC back, with uh, the Big Big Ten and Pac-12 on their way? And I got a lot of great little hot takes that were sent in via Twitter, so I will share some of the hottest of the hot takes, uh, and I'll tell you if I agree, disagree, all that stuff. But that is what we are going to be doing going forward, Hot Take Tuesday. It's a new segment. It's sweeping America just like this podcast, so we will get into that. And I will wrap with this, a really fun guest, a gentleman by the name of Seth Emerson. He is a writer for The Athletic, 
covers Georgia football, and he has a new book out about Kirby Smart. And I'll tell you this, is that I know that we don't do a lot of team-by-team breakdowns on this show, but it was a fascinating book, a fascinating read, and kind of a fascinating insight into Georgia, which is, for lack of a better term, one of the more interesting programs in college football. So Seth Emerson will be here to talk about his new book and what it's really been like to cover Georgia over these last couple years as they've gotten close but haven't quite been able to uh, to break through. I should mention, obviously, today is episode 299. Episode 300 will be on Thursday, and we got a very special guest, okay? So I already recorded this interview today. I was thinking about running it today. Instead, I decided episode 300, it's coming Thursday. Big guest, let's do something different. So how about this? How about your boy Torres on Thursday bringing out one of the great college football players in the history of the sport, okay? Herschel Walker will join the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast on Thursday for what I think will be a fascinating interview. You guys will love it. I already recorded it. Uh, And Herschel Walker comes on and talks about all sorts of stuff. We talked really even a lot of stuff that's not even about sports. We talked a lot about his background, his life, uh, overcoming adversity. For people who do not know, he grew up... uh, overweight, believe it or not. He grew up with a stutter, and we talked about bullying and mental health, but we also talked a lot about the football stuff as well. Really fun interview coming up on Thursday with Herschel Walker, Uh, but before we get to Thursday, we got to focus on today, and so with that said, before we get started, I want to remind you, please make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, make sure that you are subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, where you listen, all that stuff. You can rate and review us on any of your uh, devices. And of course, if you're not following, make sure to do so on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter. Also, the new alternate Twitter feed, Aaron Torres Pod. Also, you can find me on Instagram at Aaron Torres Pod. And I'm on YouTube and I'm on Facebook at Aaron Torres Writer. So find me in all those places. If you have any questions for the show, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. And with that said, people, no more time to waste. It is Tuesday and we have a lot to get to, mainly because we are in essentially, it's, it's not essentially, it is the most unprecedented moment in time in the history of sports, okay? And here's the deal. Little background. Don't know if you heard. Big little global pandemic that hit this 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 world uh, over the last six months. And obviously, look, it wiped out all of sports. It wiped out a lot of things, but for as it pertains to this podcast, it wiped out sports. And so I bring this up because of the fact that after a couple really tough months for all of us, and I've talked about it many times on this show, I know that everybody went through something over these last six months. Uh, I hope all of you are okay. I hope all of you are doing well. I hope you're starting to get back to a sense of normalcy. But one way in life and in society that we get back to a sense of normalcy in tough times is through sports, right? Uh, During World War II, you can go back to World War II, uh, the president at the time, uh, Teddy Roosevelt basically said, um, basically said, or excuse me, it was it was Franklin Roosevelt, I believe. He said basically we needed sports uh, for the psyche of our country, of our society. Uh, obviously, if you think back to uh, 9/11. 
the George Bush first pitch, how important that was. And so I bring it up because sports throughout history, throughout the history of this country, has proven to be not only a distraction during times of distress, but also a sign of normalcy. And so it is crazy to think about, as tough as the last six months were, we are literally hitting an unprecedented amount of sports that's about to come our way here over the next couple weeks, okay? I was thinking about it today as I prepared for this show. I'm recording here about a half an hour before the start of that Ravens-Chiefs mega, mega Monday night football game. I cannot wait to watch that. I'm not even an NFL guy, and I cannot wait to watch that. But then after that, you have the MLB playoffs starting on Tuesday. You have the... NBA Finals starting on Wednesday. The Stanley Cup Final is going on as we speak. Game 6 is Monday night, I believe, so it could be over by the time that you guys listen to this. Um, And then we have other stuff, the French Open, on top of the fact that we get NFL football Thursday, Sunday, and Monday. The fact that we get college football all day on Saturday. So we are just in the middle of an incredible, unprecedented time, and I just wanted to highlight that because I think it's important. I think it feels good, and I think it just is important to discuss and really think about the fact how crazy it is what we survived and what we now have now, which is the craziest sports schedule probably of any of our lives, probably any we, any of us will ever witness. And I would say this, on top of everything else, not only are we getting great sports, not only are we getting the MLB playoffs, the NBA finals, and the Stanley Cup final in the same week, which is obviously unprecedented. How about this? Shout out to Major League Baseball. And I know I'm going all over the place right now, but I just want to give a quick credit to Major League Baseball, who saw the success of NBA bubble basketball during the day, who've, who has seen the success of the M, uh, the NCAA tournament in which games kind of tip off one at a time. They're kind of scattered and throughout the day, so you kind of get to watch one finish and then flip over to another one and then watch that one finish. The MLB schedule is insane, okay? Couple games on Tuesday, but then on Wednesday, how about this? First game starts at noon Eastern time. I know a lot of you are Cincinnati Reds fans. I know a lot of you are Atlanta Braves fans. First game, noon Eastern, 9 Pacific in Major League Baseball, okay? And then after that, this is the MLB schedule on on Wednesday. We get a game at noon Eastern, a game at 1 Eastern, a game at 2 Eastern, a game at 3 Eastern, a game at 4 Eastern, a game at 5 Eastern, a game at 7 Eastern, and a game at 10 Eastern time, concluding the day with the Dodgers hosting the Milwaukee Brewers. So you just want to talk about a great day of sports. Wednesday, we are getting Major League Baseball from noon Eastern until 1 a.m. the following day with games basically starting every hour on the hour for quite a few hours there. And so I think it's going to be a great day of sports. And I'm just so excited that we're getting back to a sense of normalcy. And I did think it was important to point out, like we are about to uh, be in the middle of an unprecedented time in terms of sports and sports interest and sports coverage in this country. And I think it's great. Speaking of the sports and everything that's going on in our society, Game one of the NBA Finals, as I mentioned, is Wednesday. And as I said off the top, I don't do a ton of NBA playoffs here on this show. I think there are better places you can go for a breakdown of, oh, how does uh, the, the Miami Heat, how do they match up with Anthony Davis? And who do they, like, like, that's not what I am going to do. But I do think that, again, with my background covering college hoops, we have so many 
Kentucky fans that listen to this show with with you know Tyler Hero and Bam Adebayo on the Miami Heat, with Anthony Davis on the Los Angeles Lakers, with Pat Riley, who for people who do not know is a Kentucky grad, uh, it just feels like why not talk NBA Finals? There's not much going on in college hoops on a Tuesday evening, so let's talk or Tuesday morning, excuse me. So let's talk a little bit about the NBA Finals because while I am not going to kind of just like break down rosters and matchups and all that stuff. What I will do is I want to say this, is I want to say that the Miami Heat are kind of like basically the most fascinating team that I have I can ever remember in the NBA, certainly one that has made it this far. And I do think part of it comes back to what I just said a minute ago, my coverage of college basketball, the fact that I've been around this sport my entire life. I grew up in Connecticut. I, w- I grew up going to UConn games when I was six, seven, eight, nine years old. And so I love college hoops. But I will say that college hoops has, and really basketball has, uh, something that I do think is a little bit frustrating as time goes on to relate to as a fan, and that is that I do think there is a lot of times a disconnect between the players and the average fan. I don't necessarily blame the players. The bottom line is they are, are um, you know, they're born with incredible physical gifts, but because of it, uh, if you cover high school hoops and college hoops like I have, you know that some of them, you know, really, they, they start to really, frankly, just get pampered and taken care of at 15, 16, 17 years old. Agents get involved, money gets involved, shoe companies get involved, and these guys do get a little bit spoiled, right? Like, that's the nature of anything. If you get too much too soon, too young, whether you're an actor, whether you're a basketball player, whether you're a quarterback with one of these quarterback coaches, like, you can get a little pampered, you can get a little spoiled, you can be a little bit out of touch with reality. And so that's what's a little bit frustrating about the NBA. But what I would say is the Miami Heat are the antithesis of that. They're the exact opposite of that. And that's what makes this Miami Heat thing so cool is you have these NBA guys that we know at 13, 14, 15 years old, they're going to be a future NBA all-star and make a a hundred million dollars. And, you know, it's, it's just different with the Miami Heat who have one of the most dynamic, fascinating rosters that I can ever remember. For people who don't know much about him, we should probably start with Jimmy Butler. He is their best player. And for people who don't know about Jimmy Butler, I know he's a little bit weird and different and, and kind of awkward. And for people who didn't see the story, he actually brought his own espresso machine into the bubble and started charging other players for cups of coffee in the morning. Like He's just a different cat, right? And I think some people take it as arrogance. Some people take it as weirdness. But what I'll say is, if you actually understand Jimmy Butler's background, He's kind of one of the coolest athletes I think we got going in professional sports right now, right? He is not the guy that was handed a silver spoon at 13, 14, 15 years old. As a matter of fact, he's the exact opposite. Actually, kind of a sad story. I tweeted it out on Twitter on Sunday night after the heat clinched, but people seem to really like it. And Jimmy Butler's story is very simply this. Really tough childhood. Uh, his parents, um, you know, his dad abandoned him when he was a baby. His mother kicked him out of the house when he was 13 years old. And he basically spent most of his teen years, most of his high school years, couch surfing, just looking for a place, just looking for a place to belong, just looking for a roof over his head. Even when he got through his high school years, he went to junior college. Ended up at Marquette with Buzz Williams. Not going to lie, I did try to get Buzz Williams on this podcast. Uh, we got a polite decline on that one. But the bottom line remains is that with Jimmy Butler, 
um, you know, he just has a story completely unlike any other, right? And it's no disrespect to LeBron, but at 16 years old, LeBron was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Uh, at 16 years old, he had agents and shoe companies fighting over him. Never had to worry about a dollar for the rest of his life starting at 18 years old. Not saying there's anything wrong with LeBron, but what I am saying is it's pretty cool that Jimmy Butler can get to this same stage where at 18 years old, he was just looking for a couch to sleep on. Where at 19 years old, he was at some junior college in the middle of nowhere trying to prove that he belongs. When at 21, he was a senior in college, and we all know there's nothing less cool in in life right now than being a college basketball player when you're a 22-year-old senior gets to the NBA and even then doesn't make his first all-star team till about year four, year five, doesn't really fit in. He's not really one of the guys. And now here he is in the NBA finals. He's certainly not the only one. Jay Crowder, another Juco guy that ended up at Marquette. Uh, Duncan Robinson started at a D3 school, transfers to Michigan. And I'm sure a lot of you guys saw the story uh, uh, that, that popped up on Sunday into Monday But Duncan Robinson actually reached out to Mark Titus, who's a very prominent college basketball writer, and said, hey man, how do I get into the media? Because my basketball career is about to come to an end after Michigan, and now here's this guy in the NBA Finals. I would mention even the guys from Kentucky, right? Bam Adebayo and Tyler Hero. You think about Kentucky, you think about the fact, oh, there is no bigger blue blood in college basketball, maybe in all of college athletics, than the University of Kentucky. Those guys must have a silver spoon. Those guys must be guys that had the easy road to the NBA Finals. Not at all. Bam Adebayo is another one whose story is really well told. He grew up in a single-wide trailer uh, in, in, the rural, in rural North Carolina. His mom walked to work every day. Uh, worked at, I believe, a grocery store to provide money so that her son, her only son, could play basketball. And he repays her by getting to the NBA. And now she lives in the same apartment complex, the same condo complex that he does. I mean, you just talk about a feel-good story. It doesn't get better than Bam Adebayo and his family. Tyler Hero, same deal. We see him as the 37-point a game uh, in the Eastern Conference Finals guy. Let's not forget. First of all, he was committed to Wisconsin, had a bunch of people ask me this, and I think you're 100% correct. If he doesn't go to Kentucky, he's probably still at Wisconsin right now. He's probably going into, I guess it would be his junior year at the University of Wisconsin right now. Instead, he believes in himself, he bets on himself and goes to Kentucky, but even then there were bumps along the way. I shared this story a few days ago on Twitter, but a few years ago I was at the Nike Hoop Summit, which is a big all-star game up in Portland. He flies up there, he flies across country, he's playing in this game, and Tyler Hero was the player that got the fewest minutes on Team USA in that game. There was a bunch of guys on that team that weren't even very good. Quentin Grimes, who's still in college basketball. Uh, Nasir Little, who struggled, I believe, was there. Jordan Brown, who now plays at Arizona. But the point I'm trying to get to is Tyler Hero plays the fewest minutes. And then check this out. After the game, I asked the coach, I said, Coach, uh, this was in a press conference, I said, Coach, why, why didn't Tyler Hero play more? Um, you know, why didn't Tyler Hero play more? Is there, was there something wrong? Is he okay? Was he hurt? And the coach very bluntly said, this isn't an exhibition. We were trying to win the game. So how about that? Tyler Hero in a national all-star game gets told by the coach, you didn't play because we're trying to win. Hey, coach, maybe you would have won if you put Tyler Hero in. But I bring it up because it's not to say that even the guys that look like they have had the easy path 
have necessarily had that easy path. I mean, even Tyler Hero and Bam Adebayo, they were one-and-done guys, but the, the, everyone said that the heat reached on both of them. Bam Adebayo was a guy that people thought was going to fall to the mid to late first round. Can't say I really saw why, but people said that he was going to. Some people thought the heat reached on Tyler Hero. Now these guys are in the NBA Finals. And so I just bring this up because I think there's a lot of like really important life lessons in this Miami Heat stuff, right? One thing that I will talk about with Herschel Walker on Thursday is that I do think that too much in our own world, right? And I include myself in this. I'm not saying that, that everybody else is wrong and I'm right and I'm not, I don't do this. But too often in life, we look at somebody else and we say, man, that guy, I, that girl, I want their job. I want their relationship. I want their life. I want their husband. I want their wife. I want that, what they have. And you don't realize that everyone struggled to get to where they are, right? And we think of even these professional athletes as guys and girls that have had, oh, like I said a minute ago, the charm, the silver spoon. They were identified at 13 years old and given a a golden ticket to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. And that's just not how it is. Jimmy Butler sleeping on couches in high school. Tyler Hero being told that he wasn't good enough to represent Team USA at the Nike Hoop Summit. Bam Adebayo, single wide trailer. It's unbelievable. It's great, and I think it's a great metaphor for life. One, everybody, even the most successful people, have struggles. Two, you never know what other people went through to get to where they are. And three, believe in yourself. That was what I tweeted out on Sunday that made so many headlines and people really liked it, was like, these guys all believed in themselves when nobody else did. It would have been easy for Jimmy Butler to give up on himself when he has to start sleeping on couches and doing stuff that he doesn't want to do and uh, moving around. And I I don't know this for sure, but I'm guessing he probably was carrying around his clothes in a trash bag or something like that. It would have been easy for him to give up on himself. It would have been easy for Bam Adebayo to see his mom struggling and say, you know what? I need to go to work. I need to help her out. I need to go get a minimum wage job. I'm 16 years old. Instead, he focused. Instead, to his mom's credit, she let him do his thing. But in the end, it's not as though he did not have a struggle. And so I just find the heat to be so absolutely fascinating. And I just love their story. And I cannot wait to watch them. But I think it's an important lesson. Don't look at what everybody else has. Don't assume everybody else had the easy path. Everybody's had obstacles. Everybody's had hurdles. I think the Miami Heat are a great metaphor for life. Really quickly, I do want to talk one more Miami Heat topic. And I mentioned this a minute ago, but like Pat Riley, like this dude's incredible. So I was thinking about this, and this is another one that I tweeted out uh, a few weeks ago. But Pat Riley, I'm going to throw something at you. And you're going to think I'm crazy, but I want you to hear me out on this. I think you can make a, a, a case that Pat Riley is the greatest basketball mind ever and that he's still underrated, that he's the greatest basketball mind ever and that he's still underrated. And again, I know you're probably saying, Torres, you're crazy. Come on, dude. You come out with these hot takes all the time and this is the hottest one. You Hear me out. So Pat Riley, when you really peel back his resume, it's kind of one of the most incredible things that you've ever really considered. First of all, I saw this stat on Sunday night after the Heat clinched. I thought this was pretty cool. Pat Riley has either played, coached, or been an executive in the NBA Finals now in six straight decades, okay? Won a a championship with the Lakers in 1972, 
won a bunch of championships as a coach in the 80s, in the 90s, came to Miami um, and helped them get to the NBA Finals, not to mention the Knicks, which I'll get into in a minute. Um, the 2000s, he obviously wins a championship with D-Wade and Shaq. By the way, I should backtrack. The 90s, he made the finals with the Knicks, not the Heat, I believe. So uh, so no finals in the, in the 90s with the Heat. But then he gets to Miami, makes the finals in the 2000s with Shaq and Dwayne Wade, gets to the finals obviously during these 2010s with LeBron and D-Wade and Chris Bosh, and then gets to the finals this year in the 2020s. So six straight decades that he has made the NBA Finals, not to mention that in the 60s he was an All-American at Kentucky and also made a Final Four and National Championship game appearance there. So that's kind of his resume, right? And it's like, okay, he's, he's, the great, he's one of the greatest, right? It's like him, Phil Jackson, Jerry West, Red Auerbach, you know, shuffle him up, throw him in a, you know, whatever. It's like one of those four is always in the conversation. But when I was thinking about Pat Riley... This is why I was thinking, like, I think this dude might also be the most underrated basketball mind of his time, right? So we all at least are kind of aware of the era with the Lakers. I don't think people realize four championships in a decade, pretty good, I'd say. Seven finals from 1981 to 1989. Unbelievable. But that's like the least impressive part of Pat Riley's resume. Seven NBA Finals appearances with the Los Angeles Lakers. After that, he goes to the New York Knicks, leaves the Lakers in 1990. By 1993, he has them within a game or two of the NBA Finals. They lose to Jordan's Bulls. Then in 94, he takes the New York freaking Knicks to the NBA Finals. And I know people say, oh, Michael Jordan was playing baseball, blah, blah, blah. Whatever. The Knicks. We're talking about the Knicks. We're talking about a team that has done nothing right for 20 years. And Pat Riley had them in the finals within getting there for two or three years. Then he leaves New York. He ends up in Miami. How about this? This, to me, is the most incredible thing on Pat Riley's resume that no one talks about. He has rebuilt the Miami Heat four different times since he got to Miami, okay? First one, gets there. Organization's terrible. It's easy to forget now. The organization was terrible. First time he rebuilds the Knicks, or with the Heat, excuse me, it's with those Alonzo Mourning, Tim Hardaway teams. Gets those two guys, they get to a few Eastern Conference Finals, they don't break through, but if you remember what the Heat were like in the early 1990s, mid-1990s before he got there, uh, they were pretty terrible. They were pretty terrible, okay? Does well in Miami, gets to the Conference Finals, loses there. Tim Hardaway, Alonzo Mourning, has a couple down years. Then he gets to Wayne Wade, then he trades for Shaq. Second rebuild. They win a championship in 2006. No big deal. It's what Pat Riley does. Wins championships. What he does. Third rebuild. Shaq gets old. He gets traded. They move on. You then have the D-Wade, LeBron, Chris Bosh. Miami Heat. Four NBA Finals, two championships. By this point, Pat Riley's an executive. And then, of course, this, this most recent one in 2020, which, frankly, I think might be the most impressive. I mean, I know it's in a bubble. There's no home court advantage, all these other variables. But they beat the best team in the East, the Miami, the Milwaukee Bucks, and they beat probably the most talented team in the East, the Boston Celtics, to get here. So, so they didn't get the easy path, even if they didn't have a traditional path because of the bubble. But when you think about the fact that this guy, seven NBA Finals with the Lakers, including four championships, uh, 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 New York Knicks, he gets to the NBA Finals. And then... Four different rebuilds in Miami. 
I just think this guy's incredible. And I do think he's underrated. I do think he's underappreciated. I think because recently he's been more of an executive uh, because of the fact that he stays out of the limelight, because of the fact that Eric Spolstra has kind of taken on some of the the kind of uh, public face of the organization, if you will, as long as the players. I don't know exactly what it is. I just think it's credible. Shout out to Pat Riley because I do not think people realize how good that guy is. All right, that's enough NBA talk. I think we just did more NBA talk uh, in that 10-minute period, 15-minute period than I've done in years. I should mention, by the way, one last NBA thing, and I promise we'll move on. I'm not going to give a prediction. Like, I think the Lakers are going to win the championship. I do think the Heat are going to create more problems for them than anybody else. Um, I think the Heat, to me, they feel a lot like that 2004 Detroit Pistons team. If you remember, that was the team with Ben Wallace, Rip Hamilton, Chauncey Billups. They played the Lakers with Shaq and Kobe and Karl Malone and Gary Payton. And in that series, the Pistons were overwhelming favor underdogs, excuse me, and they won in five. And it was because they were just tougher, they were meaner, they were physical, they were fearless. And I see a lot of that same DNA in the Miami Heat that I see, that I saw with those Detroit Pistons a few years ago. The Lakers this year, I think, are actually a really functional team. I think they like each other. I think they get along. And so because of it, I will pick the Los Angeles Lakers to win the championship. I think I'll pick them in six. Uh, but I do think the Miami Heat are going to give them trouble. And while my official pick would be Lakers in six, I would not be surprised. I would not be surprised at all, honestly, if the Miami Heat did, in fact, win the championship. All right, so real quick, let's get to some college football. And as I told you, we got a new segment on the Air Tour Sports Podcast. And where it stems from is Saturday nights, right? So Saturday nights, games all end, college football, and I'm hosting radio. And I said, guys, spit out your hottest hot takes from this Saturday in college football. The best ones will make the show. And I was going to run a Monday, and it felt like Monday we had a ton of stuff to talk about. So, new little segment. It's called Hot Take Tuesday where I bring in the hottest takes from you guys on Twitter. If you guys ever want to get involved, you can send them to me. You can always hit me up on uh, Gmail at Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. If you ever have any hot takes that you want to share with me, but uh, I do want to give some credit. You guys <laughs> sent in some good ones. Now, there were some that weren't very crazy. Uh, one guy, Darius Slay's burner account says that Mississippi State's a top 15 team. Uh, That's not hot enough. They are a top 15 team team. There's not even a debate. Uh, Somebody says Mike Leach wins SEC Coach of the Year. Another one that's not a very hot take because I think he probably will. But let's get to some of the other ones that I do want to talk about. So the first one, it comes from Chris Butler at CoachButler24 on Twitter. And this is his hot take for this season after the first week of SEC football. That hot take is Florida will win the national championship and Kyle Trask will win the Heisman. All right, so let me say this very quick. I think Florida winning the national championship, I'm not ready to go there quite yet, okay? I think Florida's really good. I think they're better than I gave them credit for. Uh, I think they're more fun and more dynamic offensively than I gave them credit for. Not ready to say yet that they win the national championship, but Coach Butler gets it. That's the hot take I'm looking for. What I will say, however, is... You want to talk about a hot take that might not be that hot? How about Kyle Trask, Florida's quarterback, winning the Heisman? And had you asked me literally a week ago, I would have said that's an insanely hot take. 
Because when I think back to Kyle Trask last year, look, I still think of the guy that came off the bench and, and saved Florida against Kentucky. The guy that um, his, has the crazy backstory where he never started a high school game uh, before he got to college, where he never started up until that Florida game last year, uh, till Florida, till there were injuries on the roster last year. So, like, to me, I still think of him as that guy. And if you listen to Thursday's show, I said, I don't think Florida's that good. I don't think they're a national championship contender. I don't believe in Kyle Trask. And I might just have to admit it. I was just wrong on Kyle Trask. Now, maybe Ole Miss's defense is really bad. That is certainly a possibility. <laughs> they might stink. But Kyle Trask looked awesome on Saturday. Finished the game with over 400 yards passing with four touchdowns. He was the best quarterback in the SEC on Saturday outside of K.J. Costello for Mississippi State. And, you know, Mississippi State, with due respect to Mike Leach, part of that is the system. Everybody throws for a ton of yards in that system. Kyle Trask was really impressive. And so when I think about going forward, when we talk about the Heisman Trophy, I mean, who is really a candidate right now besides Trevor Lawrence and maybe Justin Fields if he comes back and sets the world on fire? There aren't very many legitimate candidates for this Heisman Trophy. And so because of it, I don't think that Kyle Trask, I don't think that's too hot of a take to say that you think that Kyle Trask could win the Heisman Trophy. So that was one. Second hot take, it comes from PC Beach Law, who says FSU should just stop playing football. We're a basketball school. Well, first of all, shout out to Leonard Hamilton friend of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, and I do think Florida State's now a basketball school, because first of all, reigning ACC champions, never forget they won the ACC regular season title last year, wasn't Duke, wasn't Louisville, wasn't Virginia, wasn't North Carolina, it was Florida State. Probably also worth mentioning, Florida State currently has the number one recruiting class in high school basketball this year. So yeah, Florida State's really good, but then it also plays into the fact that their football team is really bad. And I talked about it on Monday's show, and I talked about it last week, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. They're a really bad football team. They can't block. They can't defend. James Blackman, their quarterback, can't throw the ball. I mean, they were down 38-3 to at halftime against Miami the other day. They ended up losing 52-10. to But 38-3, to Florida State. They should never be down to any – they shouldn't be down to the Kansas City Chiefs 38-3. to but that is where Florida State is right now. I think the program really started to hit the skids the last few years that Jimbo Fisher was there. I think they struggled. I don't think they were the same team. I don't think he recruited at the same level. Florida State fans will tell you offensive line play is the biggest concern. I get it. It's obvious. It wasn't helped by Willie Taggart and head coach Mike Norvell has uh, you know he has he has a tough go of it ahead of him. All right, final couple hot takes. One, which story says. Uh, what did he say? Which story says Auburn is not a top 25 team and finishes the regular season 5-5 five and five at best? I will say this. I don't think that's as hot as other people would think it is. I watched an entire Auburn game against Kentucky. Auburn is not very good. Auburn's two offensive scores to seal the game, as I said on, on Monday's episode, it was 27 yards and five plays because of a Terry Wilson fumble and then a 23-yard scoring drive a few minutes later after a fake punt. Auburn, that was a one-possession game on talent. That was a one-possession game based on skill. And maybe it's just a reflection. I don't think Auburn's offense is that good. By the way, the plays that Auburn did score on, they weren't even good plays by Bo Nix, their quarterback. It was like, there was a great catch by, I think it was, it was Eli Stove. It was one of the wide receivers who just went over uh, a Kentucky defensive back. I don't think Auburn's that good, though. 
And you look at their schedule. Got Alabama. They got Georgia this weekend. Uh, LSU is always going to be tough. Mississippi State all of a sudden looks a lot more tough. Uh, I'm just saying, like, I, I don't know. Texas A&M, I don't know if they're 5-5. Five and five. I don't think they're that good, though. So I don't think they're that good, uh, and I don't think it's that crazy. Last one comes from Matt K., who says, Texas and Georgia finished the season unranked. I love you, Matt K. I don't buy that. I do think Texas, as much as I trashed on them on Monday's episode, uh, they survived. They advanced. I think they're like a 7-3, 8-2 type team. They might even win the Big 12. I don't think they're a legitimate top 10 team once we get back Ohio State and Penn State and Wisconsin and Minnesota, Michigan, uh, Oregon, all the teams that aren't playing right now. But I do think Texas is probably a top 12, top 15 type team. And as for Georgia, I'll just say this. I am not as worried about Georgia as everybody else. One, the transfer quarterback, JT Daniels, is healthy and ready to play this week. And I just think that run game and defense is so good. I do think they'll be able to win most of their games. I'm not saying they're undefeated, not saying they're a playoff team. I'm not as worried. They flipped a switch against Arkansas in the second half, looked really good. And I do think they'll be okay. All right, I think that's it for uh, this segment of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. And actually, that's a perfect segue into our guest this evening. So uh, Seth Emerson is our guest coming up. And Seth Emerson has covered Georgia for like 10 or 15 years, right? Like he is, uh, you know, who's a famous beat writer? Uh, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but who's the guy? Jerry Tipton that's covered Kentucky forever. Seth Emerson isn't quite that guy, but he's been on the, the Georgia beat for about 10, 12, 15 years now. Um, and he knows this program as well as anybody. And he has a new book out. It is called, uh, it, it's the new book by Seth Emerson that is called, I think it's called All In. Let me find it really quick because I can't believe I don't have, yep, it's called Attack the Day. And I talk about the book with him. So don't worry about it. If you want to get check this out, the book is called Attack the Day. And what I would just say very quickly is this. You do not have to be a Georgia fan to enjoy Attack the Day. One, it's kind of a a cool behind the scenes of how Kirby Smart ended up getting the Georgia job, what he's done since, his relationship with Nick Saban. Really fun book. You do not have to be a Georgia fan to enjoy it. But Seth Emerson coming up. And as I mentioned, Herschel Walker on Thursday for episode 300. So one, I want to thank you guys for all your support unbelievable where this podcast has come from to where it is now that we can get Herschel Walker on episode 300. Uh, But Seth Emerson from The Athletic, author of Attack the Day about Kirby Smart, coming up in a minute. Before we get out of here, I want to remind everybody, please make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you're subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead and give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff where you're listening. Uh, Make sure you're following on social media uh, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod also on Twitter. I got two separate accounts now. Aaron Torres uh, Pod on Facebook. I'm just trying to think of all these places. Facebook, YouTube, on and on and on and on and on. Uh, make sure you're following there. Gmail, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. Shout out to my boy, Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. And now, from The Athletic, author of Attack the Day, here is Seth Emerson. All right, joining me on the phone or via Zoom, I really should say, uh, really excited about this guest. He is the author of a new book called Attack the Day, 
Kirby Smart and Georgia's return to glory. Also a, a writer for The Athletic covering the Georgia Bulldogs. He's been on that beat for about a decade now, knows this program better than anybody. Uh, and as they get set for Auburn this coming week, we're actually recording right before the Arkansas game. But auburn George is going to be a huge game this weekend and no better time to bring on Seth Emerson. Again, the book is called Attack the Day. Seth, my man, what's going on? How you doing? I'm doing great, Aaron. I guess by the time this airs, I'll, I'll be having returned on a long drive to and from Arkansas. So while I'm doing great right now, let's say I'm very tired Okay. when this very, actually airs. Very tired going into the Deep South's oldest rivalry this coming weekend. But uh, I, I want to I talk about the book because I think Georgia really is, I think, one of the more fascinating teams in college football right now. Uh, and really one of the the broader, bigger programs that's more fascinating as well. And I just kind of want to start, I was just kind of curious thinking about it. I mean, obviously, you know, in general, you know, we write these these books, uh, you know, uh, at, at a time when sometimes a program's coming off a national championship or a coach has retired. And obviously, I think that there's still a little bit more of the apple for Kirby Smart to bite off. I mean, he's done just about everything other than win the national championship but why did you feel like was a good right now was a good time to do a reflective book on what Kirby Smart has done so far at Georgia? Well, Aaron, it, it started out the the genesis of this was Triumph Books came, actually came to me after the 2017 season. It was okay. as 2018 that season was beginning, but they saw what Georgia did, nearly won the championship. They saw the recruiting that they followed it up with and just everything happening. And they thought, well, this would make a pretty good story. And so the book ends up focusing mostly on the 2015 before Kirby got there to 2017 era. It does address 2018 with Justin Fields and Jake Fromm. It addresses 2019. Um, but it really focuses on a really important stretch in Georgia history and, and a stretch where Georgia went from good to great. Georgia went from under Mark Richt being a pretty good program that seemed to always be knocking on the door of being an elite program and knocking on the door of getting into the playoff or national championship to breaking through in a way that people never foresaw. And, and the book says, here's how it happened. Here's what went into it. Here were the periods, the, the, things that happened that made it important. And if you're a Georgia fan, you're reading this and you're reliving those three years and 2018 and 2019 also, but you're also learning things that you probably didn't know, insights that I got from talking to people. Um, and it just for general college football fans, you're reading about how a program that, like you said, like a lot of people have said, people thought should be elite but wasn't, how that program did go from – good to elite. So let me ask you, and, and this is coming from somebody who's not from Georgia, uh, you know, not from even SEC country, and there's obviously going to be a lot of people listening to this who aren't Georgia fans. I mean, is, is that a fair, you know, representation of kind of the overall ethos of the Georgia program? I mean, we know right now, uh, you know, some of the best high school footballs played in Georgia, some of the best talent comes out of that state every year. But, you know, we're going on 35 plus years or whatever it is, give or take, uh, without a national championship. 
Uh, is that kind of how you would describe uh, Georgia, you know, maybe through the years is that trying to break that glass ceiling because it feels like all the variables are there. And I'll be honest, I'm a guy that's been critical of Kirby Smart uh, at times throughout his tenure, but I, I'm, I'm smart enough to see that it feels like eventually they're going to break through and win one of these things. Is that kind of a fair way to kind of assess the program historically up until this point? Yeah, I mean, they're wearing uniforms this year that are commemorating the 40th anniversary of their last national championship, yeah. okay. which people kind of scoff at and say, wow, it's been 40 years since Georgia won a national championship. Well, they did win a national championship. There's a lot of programs that can't say that. And here they are 40 years later, still, I guess it depends on what poll you're looking at and whether Ohio State's in it uh, this yeah. week or not. Sure. But they're, you know, number three, number four, number five, whatever. They're, they are back then and now a national championship contender. And they were in 2017, but they were not in 2016. They were not in 2015. They've, they've had a lot of years where they just weren't. And the mentality of the program has always been that they feel like they should be winning national championships. But when Mark Richt was there, and keep in mind, and I was there for the basically the start of the Mark Richt era. I, I was covering Georgia off and on 2002, 2003, 2004. Wow. So Mark Richt took, the, took this program, just like Kirby Smart, to a level that people didn't expect. Jim Donnan was fired after having some decent seasons. He had improved the, the program. But I remember when Georgia fired Jim Donnan. Now, we're going way back, Aaron, but just follow me here. Sure. When Georgia sure. fired Jim Donnan in 2000, after the 2000 season, there were people nationally who were saying, who does Georgia think they are? Why are they firing a coach who was winning eight and nine games? Georgia is not Florida State. Well, they went and they hired Florida State's offensive coordinator. And after the typical first year of – not doing that great. The second year they took off. They were, if there was a playoff in Mark Rick's second year, Georgia would have been in it. They were number three after Georgia, after Miami and Ohio state. And they had a lot more years like that and they recruited pretty well, but they plateaued. And after 15 years, they fired Mark Rick and they hired Kirby smart. And then people were saying the opposite thing. They were saying, why isn't Georgia shooting higher? Why is Georgia only hiring a coordinator who has never been a head coach. Well, that's what they did 15 years before when they hired Mark Richt and it worked out. Frankly, I was a little skeptical. I was skeptical, I'll freely admit, as the person who wrote this book with this thesis, I'll freely admit I was skeptical of firing Mark Richt and then skeptical of hiring a coordinator who had not been a head coach. But Kirby Smart ended up being just the right guy. He is a Georgia boy. He knows the terrain. He was able to come in and recruit well. And one more thing, because I know that as hosts, you hate it when we go on these tangents. And no, everything. I love it. But when people nationally look at, well, Georgia's got all this talent in, in state, and not to pick on you, but I know you said that, because that's the easy thing to say. That's what I would say if I lived outside the state. Number one, Georgia does have all that talent in that, inside the state. But here's the thing. Kirby's recruiting outside the state. He's recruiting nationally. Their, their 2021 recruiting class will probably be mostly in state, but their 2020 class, which was number one, mostly out of state players. 2019, which was number one or number two, depending on you, whether you believe rivals are 24-7, mostly out of the state. DeAndre Swift, one of their key recruits, is from Philadelphia. They've got recruits from California, Las Vegas, uh, Arizona, Texas. You know, they're, they're going all – they've got a – offensive tackle this year from Rhode Island 
of all the places. <laughs> was he the number one prospect in Rhode Island? Who the hell knows? There's not a ranking of prep players in Rhode Island, but Georgia found a guy in that state. Um, so they, they recruited nationally because Kirby did that at Alabama where they had to go outside the state of Alabama. They couldn't just recruit the best players in there because they had to share it with Auburn. So it's been unique what Kirby has done and unexpected in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, and I want to get to some of that stuff in a minute, but I do very briefly want to go to the Mark Rick stuff because I found your reporting and, and the stuff in the book very, very, very fascinating. Um, and, you know, it just, it feels like the way that you described it is, and I remember being a fan living through it and kind of, kind of scratching my head and saying, is Georgia making the right decision? You know, this guy has consistently, and I looked it up just to make sure I wasn't going crazy last two seasons, 10 and three and nine and three. Um, but I, I, you know, you're, you're in the shadow of Alabama, you're uh, Auburn had obviously won a national championship, uh, during, uh, Mark Rick's tenure and played for another one. Um, so take us through those final few months of that Mark Richt era, because it was, it was surreal to relive it in the book. And again, the book is called attack the day and it's by Seth Emerson. Um, it, it was surreal to relive it because you forget a lot of things and you forget that for all the success that Mark Richt had, as you said, the program had kind of plateaued under his watch. It had. And, and again, I was someone who defended Mark Richt a lot in public. Um, and it was because I felt like people were forgetting where Georgia was before he got there. But those who were critical of Georgia not breaking through and getting higher than they should have been at that point ended up being right. Mm -hmm. So they, they plateaued, but what, what was a key point in the era, there were a couple key points. 2013, I kind of threw out the window because if you remember after 2012, they play Alabama in the SEC championship game and they have the, the, wacky play at the end that the ball is caught and the clock runs out. Yep. If Georgia gets in the end zone there, they go to the national championship. They probably whip Notre Dame and Mark Richt is probably the coach today, or maybe not. Maybe he's retired by this mm -hmm. point, but that one play makes a big difference. 2013, they actually started the season off. They lost to Clemson, but then they, they beat LSU and South Carolina, two top 10 teams. And then they have injuries hit and they fall off a cliff. Um, 2014 was kind of so-so. That was the year Todd Gurley got suspended. 2015, they are unbeaten going into this home game against Alabama in October. And there are stories being written about Georgia boosters. And I think this was an accurate reflection at the time. Georgia boosters happy about the way Mark Richt was running the program, the way Georgia was doing things, quote unquote, the right way while Alabama, Auburn, programs like that were kind of run amok. You know, they were, they were cutting corners. They were, you know what I mean, all that, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Georgia was kind of high and mighty about it. Alabama and Kirby Smart come in here and spank Georgia yeah. on a rainy day. Things start to change at that point. That was when I think a lot of people started to look around and go, well, we can't beat these guys. We, we can't beat Alabama. We're going backwards. We're not having a close game against them. They were blowing us out. And then they have a terrible month of October, uh, blow a big lead at Tennessee, barely beat a mediocre Missouri team, and lose to Florida when they start their third-string quarterback, Georgia does. At that point, the decision was made to make the move on Mark Rick, that things had plateaued. Um, but also what was happening was South Carolina had an opening because Steve Spurrier had retired. Yep. They were zeroing in on Kirby Smart. And people at Georgia said, 
We can't let that happen. So in conjunction with Kirby Smart being available and Mark Richt, the program seeming to have plateaued, Georgia made its move. And that's a question I've always wanted to ask somebody like you, and, and you alluded to it in the book, and I, I think I know the answer. If South Carolina doesn't have a job opening, does Georgia move, move off of Mark Richt? Specific, I mean, maybe they do, but Kirby Smart. It just felt at the time, and reading the book, it, it feels like maybe the answer wasn't Mark Richt and that was going to be that way no matter what. But I remember at the time thinking – if South Carolina wasn't going after Kirby Smart as aggressively as they are, I don't know that Mark Richt is fired. Is that just completely inaccurate memory on my part? Because it's something I seem to remember from that era. You know, Aaron, I'm not sure. I've, I've thought before, I've, I've said that myself before, that if Steve Spurrier doesn't retire and South Carolina doesn't focus in on Kirby Smart, that Mark Richt may save his job. But I'm not so sure. The more I thought about it, the more I looked at it. But I, I think that the decision was easier Sure. With, with Kirby Smart out there looming. I mean, there, there was talk of Georgia going after Dan Mullen. I mean, the fact of the matter is that Georgia at that point, because of what Mark Rick had done to put that program where it was, Georgia was going to have the pick of some very good coaches, which is sure. why people criticize them for settling for Kirby smart. Like why aren't they opening this up and going after all these people um, and just instead going for Kirby smart, but it was, it was the impetus. I mean, it it was, you know, maybe it was 50% of the reason, maybe it was more, uh, but it it was, it was a big deal. It was a big part of it. Um, Another interesting thing that I kind of had forgotten, you know, historically that your book brought up, tell people the role that I don't know role is probably not the right word, but Jeremy Pruitt, who's obviously now the head coach at the University of Tennessee, he plays a pretty big role in in just the the I don't know if you want want to call him a link between the Rick to Kirby Smart era because he didn't coach under Kirby Smart, but that was a really interesting element of the book to me that I had forgotten historically. I think Kirby um, Jeremy Pruitt that is paved the way for Kirby Smart. Interesting. Jeremy Pruitt came in here and did things. He brought an Alabama influence, which now to be fair, it wasn't that uh, Jeremy Pruitt shows up and says, I think we ought to do this. And it was the first time Mark Richt and company had heard of these ideas. No, they had, but part of hiring Jeremy Pruitt was part of saying, we want to find out a little bit about what Alabama is doing and, Mm -hmm. and bring a little bit of that here. Jeremy Pruitt with some rough edges, he, he, he made some enemies here in his two years. Make no mistake about it. But as I detail in the book, guys like Davin Bellamy, who played for him, think that he did some things to toughen them up. Like going through – Bellamy talked about going through the – Pruitt going through the locker room and saying, why are all these guys tapping out at this point in preseason practice? Um, and he did some other things. He had the, the infamous kind of rant about Georgia not having an indoor facility. And so he made some enemies while he was here, but a lot of what he was pointing out, Kirby Smart wanted too. So then Kirby gets here and he pushes for a lot of the same stuff, but he, he does it with a nicer edge. And because he's not Jeremy Pruitt, it, it goes over a lot better. So absolutely, even though he was only here two years, Jeremy Pruitt is a key figure in, in where Georgia is now. 
Take us through, um, you know, just a couple things. Don't want to give away too much of the book, but but when Kirby Smart takes over, I mean, you know, year two, they're playing for a national championship. So it's clear he does a lot of stuff right. And I think some of it goes back to what you just said a minute ago with the Jeremy Pruitt influence. And if I, if I didn't make it clear to people listening, Jeremy Pruitt was a, a defensive coordinator under Mark Richt under the previous regime. And like I said, maybe a little bit of a, a bridge to how things were done. But when Kirby Smart takes over, uh, again, without giving away too too much of the book but but just a, a one or two or three or whatever things that he does to put his stamp that that lets people know things are different because again they have been different since he got there relative to Mark Rick. Well one of the key things was Scott Sinclair his strength and conditioning coordinator people who follow college football knows that these are the unsung heroes yep. of the program much the same way that Scott Cochran was the secret sauce for Nick Saban all those years. And Scott Cochran now at Georgia, but that came much later. Um, Scott Sinclair, strength and conditioning coordinator, ended up being the secret sauce for Kirby, kind of laid the foundation. Something that emerged for me uh, was that the strength and conditioning coordinator in Mark Rick's final year was someone who actually gets a lot of the blame from people for the way, the reason that year went wrong. Um, so Kirby kind of backing into Scott Sinclair because he was not someone he knew from Alabama. He didn't know him. He hadn't worked with him before. He was recommended by George O'Leary, but he ended up being the right guy for the job. Um, that was one thing. Kirby also fundraised. Kirby has emerged as the best fundraiser hmm. that he, that Georgia football has. He will go to these. I have a story leading off a chapter about him at a country club in Atlanta in 2016 and getting in front of the, all these, the private fundraiser, getting in front of all these well-heeled donors and saying that I can't out facility anybody. We need money to catch up to Alabama, LSU, all these teams and facilities. And now in the era of the pandemic and everything and cost cutting, it, it, it maybe look, looks a little different, but at the time that that's what, that's what was happening is, is Georgia was behind in facilities. And so he's been able to make that push and, and the other part of it is just the the mentality of making practices harder than games, making practices really hard. I, I noticed going to Georgia practices every, almost every day. On, when Jeremy Pruitt got there, immediately the energy picked up. Hmm. And it continued when Kirby got there. The energy was was the same. It was, it was just a different vibe um, from Pruitt and then to Kirby. So how the, another thing that people always talk about is the recruiting aspect of it. And, and full disclosure, I made it through all the way of the book, but I lo I'm enjoying the heck out of it as somebody who just likes learning more about the sport of college football. Um, you know, we always hear about these kind of recruiting machines in, in the SEC and Ohio State and, you know, other schools, Clemson, whatever. Um, what does recruiting look like? Because I even remember when, when Georgia played in the playoff, reading all these articles about, you know, you mentioned fundraising about Kirby Smart either during the hiring process or whatever, saying we need to ramp up this recruiting machine. And I think college football fans are always fascinated with how that stuff works behind the scenes. Yeah, and, and the, there's a story from uh, when he first got there, and I was there for this. He was at the Macon Touchdown Club. And a fan asked him, you know, how are we going to lock down this state? I'm sick of seeing all these players from out of state, you know, playing for other teams. And Kirby's response was, you're going to give me more scholarships? I don't have the ability to do that. So he went the other way. Like I said earlier, it, he decided to recruit nationally and he ended up recruiting better. The, the term that a recruiting guru told me for an interview for this book was trust your board. 
Sure. Georgia makes a recruiting board and they rank their board and they don't, they try not to do it with regard to state where these people live and region. If the best player, I mentioned the kid in Rhode Island, I don't think he's a starter yet, but he probably will be by the time his career is over. His name is Xavier Truss. If the best tackle on their board is in Rhode Island, they'll go get that guy over somebody in Georgia, even if it ticks off, you know, somebody here, but they will try to find room for enough people in Georgia, you know, to placate people. And also because sometimes you stumble into somebody who's really good um, because this state is so good and someone who's under recruited, but they, the, the mantra is trust the board, trust the board, go after the best players. Don't worry if he's, you know, this tight end in uh, Las Vegas, Darnell Washington. Don't worry that it's Las Vegas. And why would a kid in Las Vegas go to Georgia when he can go somewhere in the Pac-12 or Texas or just somewhere even closer? Go after him. And they did. And they got him. And there's a lot of stories like that on this team. Yeah, without without uh, uh, I live in Pac-12 country and, and I, I can see why uh, some kids would not be hesitant to go to LSU or Georgia or Alabama or Clemson. Uh, based on what some of the programs are doing out here. All right, I want to kind of transition. I won't ask for any of the stuff from the the actual national championship game run. That was obviously the game that Alabama lost, or, or Georgia lost to Alabama. Tua gets put into halftime, et cetera. I kind of want to talk about kind of the state of Georgia right now. Like like I said, they're getting ready to play Auburn this weekend. They, they By the time people listen, they'll have played Arkansas. We're recording right before that Arkansas game. But what is kind of the ethos around the program right now? Um, because as an outsider, I, I, I don't live in Georgia. I don't know what the fan base is clamoring for or expecting. But it feels like I, I used the term glass ceiling before, and you talk about a team that, that beats the teams they're supposed to. They're beating Florida consistently now. They're winning the SEC East consistently now, but struggled last year uh, in that championship game against LSU. Uh, obviously, um, you know, haven't beaten Alabama. What is the, the mindset of the fan base now that we're on track, that we're behind schedule, that we need to win one of these games, that we've lost our window? What, what is the, the mindset of a Georgia fan entering week two here, uh, heading into the college, this college football season? And obviously, again, to reference, um, we're recording after the Arkansas game. So Georgia might have won 49 nothing. They might have won 24-20. And obviously, that will change the mindset a little bit. But just in general, this season going into the season. Right. I, I, you know, I did a poll on The Athletic, one of those fan polls earlier in the summer during the pandemic when we were hurting for content. And everybody was, yes. One of, uh, one of, uh, there were a couple questions about the patience level of Georgia fans and like what will they think if in five years, for instance, they have not won a national championship yet, five years from now. And the, the answer, I don't remember it exactly, but it was along the lines of, like, that's still okay as long as we're still in contention to be in the playoff. It essentially is the if, – if you're a baseball fan or if you understand this, it was from Moneyball, the Billy Bean philosophy of my job is to get them in the playoffs, and at that point it's a crapshoot. Sure. And Georgia fans, I think, badly want to win that national championship. But they understand, having gone through 2017, when they won the, the Rose Bowl in a game that went back and forth, back and forth, and then looked like they had won the national championship a couple times and then didn't. We don't need to rehash exactly what happened, but you know what happened. So they say, 
as long as you're getting in the playoff or at least consistently showing that you're good enough to get in the playoff, then you feel like it's going to happen at some point. And so I think that that's the mentality of the fan base is like, look, they're not going to fire Kirby if they're, you know, if they're around, if they're in the discussion. Um, the problem at the end of the Mark Richt era was they were falling off a cliff. They were, they were no longer nationally relevant, at least as far as the playoff. But in terms of getting there and whether Kirby can keep getting them there, number one is recruiting. And the way he's been recruiting, they're ecstatic about that. They love that. That shows a consistency. And that, that, that shows somebody who's going to continually have a talent base to be in contention. Number two is the offseason moves he made. Um, going and getting Scott Cochran to be the strength in, or to be the special teams coach was out of the box. We'll see if it happens, but it was it was a boss move. But then going and getting Todd Munkin and demoting James Coley, and then James, James Coley predictably leaves on his own. That was not Kirby did not get up in any press conference and announce I'm going looking for a new offensive coordinator. He has never said we're gonna overhaul this offense and I'm changing my offensive philosophy. We're not doing this man ball anymore. We're going to throw it around and we're going to move into the 21st century. He never said that. He just did it. He just went out and made the moves. And I think that gives people a confidence. It doesn't guarantee that they're going to do it. One thing that he still has to get over is he has to show that he won't make game day decisions that backfire. Um, that the semblance of can't get out of his own way sometimes. There's been some high-profile high mistakes like that the last couple of years. But it, Georgia fans, I think, are pretty comfortable with the, the idea that he's going to have them in the discussion every year. Last question, I'll let you go. You're a very busy man. I appreciate you doing this. Um, give us a scouting report on the 2020 team itself because, uh, again, we may have clarity on the quarterback situation for people who don't know uh, the guy that I would assume is the projected starter, JT Daniels, still has not been cleared medically as we uh, – as we record here. And again, it, it, it completely changes the narrative of what the team is with or without him, but give us a scouting report, as you said, ranked in the top five, and they have put themselves into that short conversation of teams that are going to be in the mix every year. And based on all my preseason research and talking to the people that I talk to, uh, there's no reason to think they can't again be in the conversation, whether that means back to the playoff national championship game, whatever is a different conversation, but it feels like they're again equipped to play with pretty much anybody. Yeah. I, I would say Aaron, you're looking at a team favored in nine out of its 10 games on paper right now. The exception being at Alabama week four of this new sec schedule. Um, but like, especially with less of a home crowd at all games, that's, you know, maybe that helps Georgia in that all important game in Alabama, but there's less importance on it because you can lose at Alabama and still make the SEC championship game very easily because Georgia's done that the last three years. They've lost one game in the regular season um, and been spanked in that one game. Um, but, well, they weren't spanked against South Carolina last year, but that was the equivalent of it because they were three touchdowns. <laughs> but that was also the first time they'd really done that. They'd had that sure. kind of unexpected – I mean, 2016 they had a couple of those, but – since 2017, they hadn't had one of those. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's going to come down to the offense. Um, it, the, the defense has just so much depth, so much returning 
starters, so many five stars, four stars, guys sitting on the bench because there's too many guys ahead of them. Um, it's just it's hard to believe that that defense won't be really good still. It comes down to the offense. It comes down to how immediate is Todd Munkin's imprint because you, you look at Todd Munkin's resume and he's always been good, um, except for the Browns, which you know he wasn't even the play caller last year. So, and then at quarterback, I mean, obviously we will have seen what happened at Arkansas. The expectation here is Dwan Mathis will start. Um, we'll see what things look like as the season goes on. Does Dwan Mathis give him this just huge upside that people weren't expecting? Or does it turn out they need someone a little bit more safer like JT Daniels, like Jake Fromm was for them seemingly? Uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch, but it, yeah, it comes down to the offense and to a lesser extent, the special teams, which are both unproven commodities all told. Interesting. If the offense and special teams can put it together, uh, Georgia should be right there again in the SEC championship game with a chance to make the playoff. Very good. Uh, the book is called Attack the Day, Kirby Smart and Georgia's Return to Glory. Uh, and I'm just going to tell you, I'm not a Georgia fan. I have no history with the school. I am enjoying the heck out of it. I think if you're just a general college football fan, you would enjoy it. I encourage people to check it out. The author, his name is Seth Emerson, also writes for The Athletic. Uh, no one, frankly, knows the Georgia program any better than Seth. So, Seth, man, I appreciate it, man. It was, it was a lot of fun. I'm enjoying the heck out of the book. And again, I know you're very busy. You got other stuff to do. So thank you for carving out a nice chunk of time here to chat about the book and uh, looking forward to chatting again soon. Thanks, Aaron. Anytime. I really appreciate it. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane. So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.